Robert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. We're only seeing as a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. It was Thomas Jefferson who reportedly said, dissent is the highest form of patriotism in America. Yet for at least a century, powerful forces have consistently sought to crush dissent by calling anything that challenges their power terrorism. This has gone on a long time. The clear intent is to separate those who quietly go along from the dangerous others who would dare challenge the power structure. But the First Amendment to our Constitution enshrines our right to dissent as at the very core of what it means to be an American. It's part of our identity. But The Trump age is something new, something different. The new powers intend to quash the old understanding that America is a constitutional republic. You know it and I know it. We, the people, are not so much citizens as we are here as mere subjects of the new corporate class. Questioning that corporate class is suspect. Daring to actually exercise our constitutional right to dissent or to exercise the tradition of civil disobedience is tantamount, according to them, to terrorism. In fact, some American states have already passed legislation criminalizing our old traditional right to protest. uh, New laws are being crafted uh, to, by law, uh, label to, to label protesters as terrorists with harsh punishments attached. Who is behind this state-by-state effort to criminalize dissent? With us today to talk about this dangerous trend is Steve Horn. Steve, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Steve Horn is a San Diego-based investigative journalist for criminal legal news and prison legal news. He previously was a reporter and research fellow for desmogblog.com and a reporter and researcher for the Center for Media and Democracy. His reporting has appeared in The Intercept, The Guardian, Al Jazeera America, Vice News, Wisconsin Watch, Counterpunch Magazine, Truthout, uh, and others uh, across the country. In his free time, this is impressive, I must say. Steve is a competitive <laughs> marathoner with a personal best time of two hours, 43 minutes, and four seconds. Wow. And nine marathons under his belt. Uh, he also has served on the film screening committee for the Heartland Film Festival in Indianapolis and serves on the screening committee for the San Diego International Film Festival. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Thanks again for being with us, Steve Horn. Uh Let's start right out here. Some of the states where it's gotten started. Minnesota, 
Louisiana, Wyoming, Iowa, and Ohio. They've all introduced bills that seek to criminalize pipeline protesters as eco-terrorists. What would these bills actually do, Steve? Well, the bills do different things in different states somewhat, but what they really have in common is two things. One, civil penalties for, uh, civil law penalties, I should say, for participating in protests of what's called, quote-unquote, critical infrastructure, which includes, and really, most importantly, probably uh, in in the case of what really, what's the motive behind these bills is, uh, pipelines or oil and gas infrastructure, right. Right. but um, yeah, you know, so it's civil penalties, meaning um, if you a you are someone who is um, financially supporting this work, whether yeah. you know, if you're an NGO like Greenpeace or Earth First or the Sierra Club or a local community group that doesn't have such a big national name so potentially um if the, if a company feels like you were in got in their way mm. uh they could sue you for financial damages in civil court but i think just as importantly what all these bills have in common maybe even more importantly because I, this has the power of putting people in jails or prisons potentially there's criminal penalties yeah. um you know ranging from one to ten years, depending on if you are a quote-unquote conspirator or if you're the one who actually did the activity. But, yeah, I mean, and and um, that's kind of what they all have in common. There's various ranges of, of penalties and financial penalties, you know, what I'm saying, you know, so it could be one year, it could be ten years, it could be somewhere in between, it could be um, $100,000 penalty, it could be a million-dollar penalty. But um, what they both have, in, what they all have in common is the power of both civil law and right. criminal law to punish people who protest this quote-unquote critical infrastructure on the land um, on, on which it actually sits. So as opposed to protesting it um, at a state house or right. in a city council or something like that. So that's the key, is that it has to kind of get in the way of that infrastructure that you're protesting against. Then uh, these penalties can kick in under uh, under the legal language found in in these various bills. It must have been a lot of fun, I suppose, for the various lawyers to come up with this, to come up with the language. (laughs) It's fascinating. I mean, this this is lawyer sort of nightmare and dream because there's so many different definitions that have to be Mm -hmm. nailed down. Now, I had never heard of ALEC, A-L-E-C, before I was a state senator in New Hampshire from 1990 to 2004. I'll tell you, I learned all about them in that time. Of course, most of our listeners have not heard of them. What is ALEC, and what is their, uh, are they the source of this? What is their agenda? Yeah, so ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, has existed since the 1970s, sort of existed somewhat quietly, I would say, at least in terms of public knowledge about it, until probably, you know, maybe 2011 or 2012, when... Um, lots of different anti-public union bills started passing in state yeah. houses, such as in Wisconsin was probably the mo- where I was living at the time was probably the most public uh, examples of those where there was the huge uprising that took place in, in Madison, Wisconsin. But 
you know, so these bills that are passing all over the country to um, make it harder for uh, public unions to organize, basically. Um, and um, it, and there was a big article that came out by a professor at University of Wisconsin, uh, Bill Cronin, who's an environmental historian. He wrote a blog saying, hey, could it be that this is Alec that's pushing these serious bills across the country? And, and actually, lo and behold, it, it wasn't Alec in, in that case, but it still got to the important point is that ALEC is an organization that has existed for decades, and what they do is provide a forum for uh, corporate lobbyists, uh, predominant membership of Republican Party state legislators, um, and so they get together several times a year at these big meetings in different cities across the country. One of them is in D.C. every year. I think it's kind of a staple, but then they rotate around the country besides that at the other meetings for locations. And at the meetings, they I mean, it's networking, it's sort of uh, just normal, par for the course, kind of educational type uh, things where they invite speakers to talk about issues. But the most important thing they do for what we're talking about is passing model legislation, mm-hmm. which is, or model bills, as they call them, which takes place um, and it's finalized at their annual meeting, um, their states and policy meeting, that the, the last year took place in Washington, D.C., and so there, uh, the lobbyists who are there and the state legislators uh, get in a room, kind of have a pile of bills that were discussed maybe before that by the board of directors and then other key movers and shakers in the organization, and they vote yes or no on these quote-unquote model bills that end up, if they are yes votes, these bills are then distributed uh, to different state legislators across the country. So what we're talking about today would be an example of a bill uh, that ended up not originally being an ALEC bill. It was actually originally a, a bill in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, two different bills, actually. One of them dealt with criminal pen- penalties for what we're talking about, and one of them was civil. What they did is package those two things together, called it one bill, um, but they said it was inspired by the Oklahoma bill. So it passed the December meeting um, in 2017, and starting in January 2018, it's uh, started to be proposed in uh, several other states across the country. And to my knowledge, um, it has not yet fully passed in any of the states, but it came very close, and we'll talk about it in, in the state of Wyoming. Yes, we will. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Steve Horn. We're talking about a state-by-state effort to scare away dissent, to, to crush dissent, to frighten people, to uh, to threaten them, kind of, uh, for, against exercising their constitutional rights. And as you describe, Alec, I'm, I'm reminded a little bit, in our state house, there was a wonderful uh, entity called uh, Legislative Services, where each legislator... Uh, if he or she wanted to put in a bill, would go to legislative services, and they'd work the legal language. We would tell them our intent, and they'd find the appropriate place to plug it in and work the legal language to make it into a, uh, uh, you know, a, an actual legislative proposal. It sounds like Alec kind of does that as as well. Uh, yeah, you know what, what? What I would say is that. Um those kind of serve, you know, the the, the type of, uh, I don't know if you call that an agency or that type of uh, organization that exists in Wisconsin to uh, probably a lot of other states. They probably still play a role. It's just that it's, it's more on the 
the fine tuning of it to sure. make sure that it would be a bill that that it could actually be legal under under state law. But so I mean, not every bill looks one hundred percent exactly the right. same, but right. it's more the spirit of them is still pretty much the same. Of course, every state is going to be slightly different for the exact reason that you discussed. That you know that you have to find so it is legal in your state. But yeah, yeah. that's that's why it's sometimes hard to tell. Oh, this is. This is the Alec bill. This is not the Alec bill. So you really have to look at his really the main points and the things like the the penalties that are dealt out and this type of bill and that sort of thing. Yeah, it was kind of fun back then when you know we'd look at a piece of legislation, and wonder is this an Alec bill, and do a little research and find out. Yeah, it's a cookie cutter thing. They just mm-hmm. take out one state and put in another state, but they do have to adjust. How do we know that Alec was behind these bills relative to to uh, criminalizing? and uh, making it very difficult to protest, especially against pipelines. Do we have evidence that it was ALEC? So ALEC has, first of all, pretty um, kind of proudly, I would say, uh, discussed how they thought this bill was necessary um, in in like their own blog post sort of thing. And then when pressed on it, at least by me, uh, they never denied that they were behind the bill. And they just sort of decided why they thought the bill was important. So when they had the chance to potentially deny it, uh, they never did. Um, probably it's a mixture when you talk about, like, are they behind it? Right. Um, I don't know how hard Alec is actually now lobbying for it now that it exists already as a model bill. But I'm sure that there's more one of those things where there's an open line of communication by people who are already, and this is the most important thing probably, uh, the legislators are already ALEC members in a lot yes, of cases who yes. are co-sponsors of the bill, so they would already have known about this or have the most sort of uh, kind of day-to-day relationship with ALEC. So, um, Alec, so first of all, ALEC has never denied it. Mm-hmm. Uh, second of all, a lot of the legislators behind the bill are ALEC uh, dues-paying members. Sure. And then third of all is just the timing of it. So the bill passed in December. Um, through as, an, as a model bill in Alec, and then really without much delay in the next you know, two, three months thereafter, we see several different examples of this bill being proposed in state houses, all of which, what, what do they all have in common? There's key pipeline fights in those particular states, and most of those pipelines are owned by the company Energy Transfer Partners, which uh. really um, is the impetus of all this is because of the protests that ensued uh, over the Dakota Access Pipeline, which is owned by Energy Transfer Partners. So that particular example is also often cited by state legislators when they talk about the need for the bill, like on the, you know when they're talking about it on the floor uh, or they talk to the press, they often cite that example and they say, oh, well, there was, quote-unquote, eco-terrorism right. there, and we need to stop that from coming into our state, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, I would say just looking at the timing and then all the, all the other circumstances, it's pretty obvious um, that this yeah. is Alec behind it, and they haven't really shied away from saying why they think the bill is important in their own literature. And, you know, we talk a lot about national issues on, on this show, Keeping Democracy Alive, and the reality is that there's various different ways to to push a national agenda. It doesn't always have to be in Washington. You know, the states, right. as they say, are the... Uh, 
uh, you know, workplaces of uh, uh, laboratories of democracy. Well, you can push a national agenda at the state level, and that's exactly what Alec does. Now, we've all heard of the the uh, easy-to-pick-on demonized Koch brothers, who well deserve it, quite frankly. Who, who else—what's the Koch brothers' interest in? What other powerful interests take part in the annual Alec get-togethers? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, Alec— um has members who come and go sort of to the meetings. Um, some years you'll see Exxon Mobil or BP or the Corrections Corporation of America or um, Monsanto or kind of a who's who of the, <laughs> the, the Fortune 100 or Fortune 500. You know, wow. But they're not there every single time. It really depends uh, what they want to get done. Um, so, um, you know, MG Chancellor Partners has been a member um, but, you know, I think that some years they'll be there, some years they won't. But the whole point is when they need something from their perspective, when they want a bill, Alec provides a venue in which they can shop around that model bill and hopefully right. get it passed in the you know, uh, policy area task force. Um, and then from there, hopefully it becomes a model bill that's distributed to state houses Nationwide, and, and so to answer your question about the Coke brothers and mm-hmm. Coke Industries, um, they've been involved in it for a long time. But I would say that, like every other corporation who's involved in Alec, they're not necessarily involved every year, day to day. I mean, they see it as a one important venue to have their voice sure. heard. But um, at least in terms of this particular bill that we're talking about, um, I've been have been asked about that. What's their role? Um, I don't really see it as like a, as as involved of a role as, say, like an energy transfer partner is the owner of the Dakota Access Pipeline, for example. But, um, you know, not like they'd be, like, super unhappy about this bill. I haven't seen them voice any concern about the bill either uh, through their own channels. But, yeah, I haven't yet seen anything that really indicates that they are specifically behind this bill, either in ALEC or in, in other state houses in which it's been pushed. Well, there's a lot of the... Uh the big boys who were, I guess, the, the usual gang of suspects, as they would say in uh, various old movies. So right. let, let, let's start with Oklahoma. Why is it logical that, that Oklahoma was the uh, kickoff for this national effort? Well, yeah, so that's, this is a, the, the origin story is pretty fascinating um, in terms of how the what the, the bill started, but also sort of the, the inner workings of the national security state. So really, um, last year, um, Oklahoma uh, started pushing these bills. And Oklahoma, of course, is a state that uh, is a huge oil and gas state, first of all. They have an oil derrick in front of their, their state house, which is... Mm said many times when you talk about Oklahoma, so I'm sorry to <laughs> repeat a cliche, but it, it is kind of striking if you've never been to Oklahoma to see that they actually have uh, an oil rig right in front of their state house. That not too actually, subtle. Yeah, it's not subtle, right. So, um, but yeah, you know, so Oklahoma um, is also the headquarters of a company named Continental Resources, which is owned, or sorry, the CEO of which is Harold Hamm, who was Donald Trump's energy, top energy aide uh, during his campaign and still a key supporter. He came to the inauguration, I believe. Um, he spoke at the RNC back in 2016. 
And most importantly, probably, is that 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 particular company, Continental Resources, uh, some of their oil, a significant portion of its oil is the oil that's flowing through the Dakota Access Pipeline, which they said themselves in one of their investor sort of presentations, which I found and reported on back in 2016. So they see Dakota Access as extremely important for their uh-huh. business line. A lot of their drilling takes place in North Dakota, et cetera. So um, Oklahoma um, started proposing these bills, and while these bills were being proposed, also the Department of Homeland Security um, issued a report titled Potential Domestic Terrorist Threats to Multi-State Diamond Pipeline Construction Project. Hmm. So, yeah, that was a pipeline that that's a pipeline that goes from Oklahoma eventually to Tennessee. Uh, but so while that was being the, the merits of that pipeline were being debated, this bill was being proposed and the Department of Homeland Security issued this quote unquote field analysis report, which sort of gave a, a seeming justification and a need for this bill. These two bills, actually. So then both bills ended up passing, um, and lo and behold, uh, several months later, I guess, at the end of the year. So this was this was all in the spring of 2017, but by the end of 2017, it became an ALEC model bill inspired by these two bills in Oklahoma. Interesting. You know, I don't know where the term doublespeak came from, but Homeland Security... Uh, it sounds like they're in service to the uh, the oil petroleum industry, and and to call it as you were describing, you know, they report something about uh, domestic terrorism. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, isn't it called popular opposition? Maybe <laughs> I mean, the right. will of the uh, people. Oh, and they never they never really. Uh, if you look at the, their report, uh, first of all, the report never it wasn't something they published themselves. It was something that was quote-unquote, leaked to uh-huh. um, a right-wing newspaper, the Washington Examiner, but they never really give very precise examples of what terrorism would is, is either uh, being conspired about or is being plotted. Um, but yeah, it's just sort of this, they do these things that are very vague, but the titles look really important. It's on their letterhead, so... Yeah. Uh, some news outlets will report it as, oh, it's a really big deal and potential eco-terrorism threat. But in reality, if you actually read the reports, there's not much in the way of, of details that really explain any, that would substantiate the, the headline of their, their field reports. Yeah, well, when I was growing up, I was so naive to think that the government actually served the common good. How silly of me. No, they're there to, at least these days, to serve these uh, petroleum interests. And... Uh, you know, you talk about use of the term terrorist. Every fascist uh, uh, regime has started out fighting terrorists, which means any opposition. They, I mean, there's a long history of, of labeling your opponents as terrorists. I, I do find that fascinating. And aside from Oklahoma, the, the term well, the name Energy Transfer Partners has come up a few times, so let's get right at that. Energy Transfer Partners, who are they? I wonder if you could tell us about their lawsuit, who, who are their targets, what what it's about, and uh, if you could talk about that a little bit, please. Yeah, so they, you know, I would describe them as, this still hasn't been fully fleshed out in terms of being able to see if they've been the, you know, the major proponent of this in ALEC or in the state houses. 
but um, I would describe them as the major force behind this bill because uh-huh. yeah. it all. I think that the main motive behind all this is uh, a want and sort of a need from an industry perspective to stop at all costs what happened in uh, North Dakota back in 2016 with the Dakota Access Pipeline and uh, the uprising and organizing that took place, um, mostly epicentered at the Standing Rock Sioux uh, Tribal Reservation, where for months uh, people came to Standing Rock and really impeded uh, the building of a small section of that pipeline that was on federal land that um, crossed some a key river um, and yeah. a, a lake that was a drinking water source. So basically, there's a, a lot to stop that sort of thing. Whoa. Energy Chance Partners was the company that owned the Dakota Access Pipeline. Energy Chance Partners CEO is Kelsey Warren, who was a major donor to President Donald Trump. I, I believe he gave $100,000 to his presidential campaign. I also think he... I don't know if he attended the inauguration, but he's been someone that's seen as a rare um, vocal ally of Donald Trump. A lot of his corporate allies are careful to be too public and public-facing about their support for Trump, but not Kelsey Warren. So, yeah, Energy Center Partners is not only the owner of Dakota Access Pipeline, they're also trying to build an extension pipeline called Bayou Bridge in Louisiana, um, another pipeline in Ohio, uh, and then another... Uh, pipeline in Pennsylvania and in Texas, elsewhere. So they have several pipeline projects in the queue, and I think that if you if you look at where these bills are passing or being proposed, Ohio is one of those states. Louisiana is one of those states. Pennsylvania has a um, intercept report yesterday has a similar type. Mm-hmm. Uh, legislation being proposed there. So it just so happens that every state in which <laughs> energy transfer partners, mostly every state where these bills are passing, energy transfer partner or being proposed, uh, energy transfer partners also has a pipeline that's being proposed and highly contested in those states. So I think that's indicated that they're um, probably behind these bills. And the last thing I'll say about their role is at least in one state, Iowa, which by the way, Dakota Access Pipeline starts in North Dakota but then passes through Iowa into Illinois, so that's the route of that pipeline. So Iowa is a key state there. Uh, that's the one state where I've seen that they registered to lobby in support of one of, of yeah. this type of bill. So um, in other states, it's a little harder to track specific support for bills uh, for based on their disclosure laws, but in Iowa, um, and, and I know Wisconsin too, um, you have to disclose your support. If you're lobbying for or against the bill, you have to disclose that. So in the case of Iowa, uh, you can see Energy Transfer Partners is listed. So is the American Petroleum Institute. Uh Um, So are some uh, law enforcement organizations, et cetera. Uh But um, that's just an indicator to me that um, probably Energy Transfer Partners is the key driving force behind these bills, which makes a lot of sense based on uh, the cited need for this bill to yes. begin with, which has consistently been Dakota Access and the Standing Rock example by several state legislators in different states. Oh, yeah. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is called Keeping Democracy Alive, and there's never a lack of issues on that topic, I'll tell you. Our guest is Steve Horn. We're talking about state-by-state efforts to crush dissent through legislation. And 
let's face it, the current version of the Republican Party, as opposed to the Republican Party of Eisenhower and even Reagan, is pretty obviously servants to the corporate interests. They're, they don't you know, seem to hide that at all. Is it only Republican legislators who are behind these bills to criminalize and, and uh, scare away protest? I would say it's mostly Republican Party legislators who are behind this, but I will say that we've talked a lot about Alex so far as the sort of the the venue in which this bill became a model. Um, But there's another venue that where it became a model too. Um, It's called the Council of State Governments. They have what they call suggested state legislation, and it also became a, I guess, a quote-unquote model. They wouldn't call it that, but Mm -hmm. became a model bill there in the Council of State Governments. That is an organization that has membership that's both Republican Party and Democratic Party. They also have legislation that's a lot of it is not really necessarily stuff that corporations are are interested in, but sometimes it is, and corporations can still get involved in the organization and attend the meetings in which these types of bills are put on the docket. So um, we've seen, and, and I just say all that to say that in some state houses, we've seen a little bit of bipartisan support. Uh-huh. I wouldn't say like it's not a 50-50 thing, but you'll see maybe a couple Democrats um, who are co-sponsors, maybe two of six or one of six, one of five, kind of a ratio like that. But uh-huh. uh, what would explain that probably is that the bill can be pointed to not only as an ALEC model bill, but also as council uh-huh. of state governments. And I feel like Probably for a lot of state legislators, once they see the CSG badge on it, uh, Council of State Governments, right. they might say, "Oh, okay, it's a uh, sort of legitimate accepted bipartisan." Yeah, exactly. Even though, yeah, if you actually look at the origins of this, it was completely driven by corporate interests. Um, Alec is probably still the most the one that's really spoken out in support of this bill. So, yeah. um, what they're really riding on is hopefully getting it passed um, in state houses that have predominantly Republican Party sure. leadership and governors and that sort of thing. Yes, and, and I got to put in a plug for, I mean, I occasionally went to uh, CSG things, but NCSL, National Council of State Legislators, they would never get behind this stuff. They're the good guys, I have to say. And there's a lot of good people involved in NCSL uh, legislation trying to serve, dare I say, the common good. And they didn't pay me for that. Uh, now, I, I talk about history a lot on this show. One might have thought that lessons from history could have been learned. For example, during the Vietnam War, when there were harsh crackdowns on protests, none too subtle, what it did was only increase the determination of the protesters and swelled their numbers. The massive and long-lasting protests at Standing Rock against the proposed oil pipeline across indigenous lands were met with a very heavy hand. There was some violence taken, you know, used against them. I'm not sure exactly what else. In fact, a a person who's running for uh, Congress from this part of New Hampshire, Lincoln Soldati, when he was, uh, before he was running, he was just a lawyer, he went out there to uh, observe and to see what he could do to help. Lincoln Soldati, there's a lot of good candidates here. But anyway, very aggressive police tactics against those seeking to protect their water were used at Standing Rock. I, I'm a little bit surprised at that because there was tremendous public support for the indigenous trying to protect their water. Mm-hmm. Is that the impetus for this legislative effort at the state level? It sort of appears that the police crackdown of the old days has kind of morphed into this. Is that 
What, what's your take I on think, that? Go ahead. I think that, yeah, you make a great point. It's that if they, if they don't really have a, justific- a seeming justification for what they're doing in terms of calling it something like terrorism or eco-terrorism or impeding, quote-unquote, critical infrastructure, which sounds extremely important and grave, um, all of those things and more, if they don't have that, that backdrop, it's really hard uh, to justify when protests actually take place, these harsh tactics that are being used, whether it's uh, coming in with heavy, you know, heavily militarized gear and, and tanks and that sort of thing that looks a lot like what they would use in counterinsurgency uh, tactics, or whether it's the, the harsh criminal, criminal penalties that are brought against the people who are protesting on the land which contains the quote-unquote critical infrastructure, mm-hmm. all of that would be much harder for them to justify if they didn't have a story to go along with it for why that sort of behavior um, is needed, as they would say. So um, an example, I guess, to, to just illustrate it a little bit further, is uh, several months ago, maybe almost a year ago now, I did a story on how... Um, law enforcement level and National Sheriff's Association has been huge in all of this and in the response at least in the the response to pipeline protests since the Dakota Access Pipeline and they they actually helped they actually hired a PR firm by the name of Off the Record Strategies and another one by the name of Delve. Delve is run by the former research director of the RNC. Off the Record Strategies is run by actually the guy who did PR for the Bush administration. Uh, to promote the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, um, his mm. name is Mark Fiefel. and so wow. um, this particular those particular organizations worked alongside the National Sheriffs Association to basically create the narrative that we're talking about right now in a lot of ways about you know, terrorism or uh, you know sympathy. One of the things is oh these these people are sympathetic with Palestinians. This is one of the things they would say, or these people are violent, they're participating in riots, basically any term, that could, any kind of thing they could point to that would make it seem like these are not peaceful protests, but these are violent, kind of anarchist-type protesters who don't care about the law. And of course, that was all talking points they came up with, um, which could potentially bias juries um, if it ever went to... Uh. Uh, court because, of course, this is a public narrative. It could shape the way that people think about these things. And in the, in the most high-profile example, um, a, woman, a woman by the name of Red Fawn Fallis, um, she was actually originally charged with murder or attempted murder because a gun went off when she was arrested at Standing Rock. Um, that Those charges were dropped, but um, still some other charges were kept in terms of resisting law enforcement, that sort of thing, and she eventually settled that lawsuit. But her case actually had to be moved um, from one jurisdiction in North Dakota to another because in the one jurisdiction where she was being tried, um, the efforts of law enforcement, uh, which were cited by her defense team, actually convinced the judge that yeah, the jury pool would just be way too biased. Um, they all already believe that everyone is guilty because of what's been cited to them by law enforcement and a compliant media. And so... It really did play out in that case where somewhere in a key issue that was being tried in court, it got moved. So um, all that said, it shows what, you know, 
the lengths to which law enforcement would go to push this narrative can definitely shape the public mind. And, and at least a judge was convinced that a woman couldn't even get a fair trial in that particular jurisdiction. And so it was moved. Well, every now and then the system of justice does work. And, and I didn't catch the name of the guy who was in the uh, Bush administration who sold the Iraq war on us, but he earned his money. Most yeah, people? He do, he's still on adult. Yeah, his name is Mark Fiefel, So Mark Fiefel. He runs off the record strategies. Oof. His name isn't really, if you, as the name implies of his organization, he's not really meant to be a very public figure anymore. Uh, of course. Um, they provide behind the scenes consulting, yeah. but through an open records request that I did with a sheriff's department in Wyoming, um, you could see that he was had a direct line of communication in, in shaping the entire message. So yeah, was a high-ranking PR type official in the Bush administration who yeah. um, helped to help try to sell the Iraq and Afghanistan war when it was getting unpopular back in like 2006, 2000, in mm, that time uh-huh. period when they were figuring out what they were going to do next with those efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Well, I wonder about, you know, there were charges of violence. And what we're, I think what we're talking about here is when dissent allegedly crosses the line, and Mm -hmm. sometimes it can. And I have found that, you know, there have been protests against Trump, for example, by this uh, uh, Antifa, Antifa, Mm -hmm. anti-fascists, who would punch right-wingers, alt-right leaders, actually punch them and get violent against it, which only plays into the hands of the other side. And, you know, it's hard to resist violence sometimes. And, yeah, a lot of people, good Americans, patriots, hate fascism. But punching them, I don't think really achieves the goal. But I'm wondering about specifically with Standing Rock, you know, the threat of violence, painting the protesters as going beyond the line of dissent and going into violence. What is the truth regarding that at Standing Rock? I mean, I know, quite frankly, we saw it, you know, as you say, the police tanks, the military tanks there. But what about the protesters? Is there truth to the accusation that the protesters there were largely violent or even somewhat violent? What is the reality? Well, so uh, one caveat, I, I actually never had a chance to go to Standing Rock to do on-the-ground reporting. I had to do pretty much everything I did was through digging up documents and just trying to, as things happen, was doing reporting that sort of would shed light on various things, like helicopters that were flying over who owned those, that sort of reporting. So I wasn't, I was doing what I consider to be kind of investigative reporting, but it wasn't on-the-ground investigative sure. reporting. That That said... Um, pretty much everyone that I've seen do reporting on Standing Rock who actually was there. Um, I have several friends who, who actually went there and spent considerable amount of time there. Uh, what they all say is that it was a, a, a movement that was committed to nonviolence, of course. Um, right. Within that, there could be some people who just sure. saw it as a place to go, and maybe they would talk about what they wanted to do, and um, depending yeah. on who they were talking to, maybe they were provocateurs who were oh, yes. convincing them to say those things. Oh, yeah. But that said, um, what I've basically seen is that people who actually reported on it fairly and went there, um, it was a movement that was definitely committed to nonviolence. I think what they're really pointing to, although um, you know, it's off, Dakota Access is usually cited um, and Standing Rock is usually cited, there's another example that happened right around the same time. Um, a, a group called 
the quote-unquote valve turners. And what mm. they did is they actually, mm. it was a group of about five different activists who went to different pipeline infrastructure around the country. And what they did is mm-hmm. went to the site of where the valves are located, turned them off. Um, uh-huh. uh, they, they filmed it because um, they wanted to kind of make a point that we really need to stop the flow of all this oil for the purpose of climate change. Um, it's not being discussed at all in the, pres- in the presidential race, yeah, so we sure. want to kind of do a high-profile example. All of them got criminal charges. Wow. Several, several of those are now in court, but um, I think that you know a lot of people think that be- beyond Standing Rock, that would be another example. But again, that was not... To, to answer the, the heart of your question, those were not examples right. of violence at all. That was right. they did turn off the infrastructure kind of publicly. They they said that we need to do this because of climate change, but they didn't go there with an axe and chop it up. They just right. turned the valve and turned it off, and um, that was enough to. Uh, first of all, they got you know, trespassing charges. Second of all, they got sure. charges that had to do with tampering with critical infrastructure. Critical but infrastructure. the key point is that none of that was actually. Violent, and that, right. that's a group that's definitely committed to uh, nonviolence, and that the group that led that is called the Climate Disobedience Center. So they're committed to civil disobedience, which of right. course is against the law, but right. not at all supportive of doing anything violent in, in any case. And civil disobedience, you know, there's a long, proud history of civil disobedience in America, you know, for a couple of centuries. And you talk about criti- critical infrastructure and critical land. We talked about that a little bit as being you know, something that relates to uh, energy delivery. Who gets to decide that? How is it defined? Yeah, that's an, a really good question. It's something that really needs to be, I would say, investigated, reported by both scholars and also by journalists to figure out how, you know, how did certain things become what's called quote-unquote critical infrastructure while other things are not. For example, I don't believe that the right to clean water for tribes or people in rural communities is considered necessarily critical critical infrastructure, but what is considered critical infrastructure is uh, power plants or uh, power lines or pipelines or refineries. All of these things really got enshrined into law under the Clinton administration in 1996 as critical infrastructure, but were further emboldened um, after 9-11, um, uh-huh. under the name of preventing terrorism, mm-hmm. um, certain things that are basically described as so essential to day-to-day life in America that they need to be protected as, quote-unquote, critical infrastructure. So it's something that, on a day-to-day basis, the Department of Homeland Security has oversight of, and then in every state there's there's fusion centers that are run by the Department of Homeland Security, and the FBI, but they're at, at the beginning, at least back in 2003, um, you know, that period, 2001, 2003, there was criticisms even by the, the business press of how it can be abused and how certain things could be called critical infrastructure while others couldn't and how it could end up just protecting corporate interests. So I think that it's something that has not really been, um, I would say, scrutinized enough in the past decade and a half, but we're seeing it still being played out right now in these state houses. What they all have in common is that it's called, quote-unquote, critical infrastructure, and and the power of law behind that is uh, the Patriot Act of 2001, um, which has a whole Uh. visions about the critical infrastructure. So um, I would say that that 
the particular concept needs more scrutiny to understand who was behind it at the time, who's been interested in keeping it in place since, and how just the the term can be abused um, to serve corporate interests. I I guess, you know, what might be critical land and critical infrastructure to indigenous people who happen to live uh, by a water facility Nah, not quite the same. Not as much value as that. Right. Uh, You know, clearly they would have uh, called water a critical land, a critical infrastructure. Amazing to me. Now, there's something called RICO, the Racketeering Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. Sounds pretty clear. The intent was to go after the mob and organized crime. How, Mm -hmm. How are they using RICO laws to go against protesters. Do they have a case under RICO? Well, yeah. You kind of asked this question before, what is Energy Transfer Partners up to? Um, One of the other things that they've been up to besides what I believe is probably support of this ALEC model bill is these two key RICO lawsuits are, uh, as you said, Racketeering Influence Corrupt Organizations Act. And, yeah, as you said, this was a bill that was originally meant uh, this legislation that was meant to stop organized crime, right. but it's really been used in recent years, starting really back um, probably about half a decade ago with the Chevron case, in which Chevron, several decades ago, contaminated a lot of water land in Ecuador. There's a big lawsuit that played out in both Ecuador and then came to the United States, and actually Chevron convinced a judge in that case that um, what the organizations who were involved in that lawsuit were doing was an act of racketeering where they they raised money and they created a whole, quote-unquote, conspiracy to uh, shake down Chevron and, and get its money. And so because of that precedent in that lawsuit, the judge agreed. Um, and so that was huge in terms of emboldening corporations. Since then, we've seen corporations start talking about uh, racketeering much more as it pertains to activism against it. So, the most recent example, two most two recent examples are both um, have to do with uh, organizing that Greenpeace has been doing. One was a uh, uh, case of uh, Resolute Forest Products in Canada, um, which is a multinational company, um, and they've been organizing against some of their practices. And so, a RICO lawsuit was brought against them by Resolute. And then um, the same legal team, uh, which is the Kazowitz firm, uh, Mark Kazowitz is the uh, personal attorney, one of the personal attorneys of Donald Trump, and his firm is representing energy transfer partners and then Resolute in those cases. But so most recently, uh, energy transfer partners teamed up with the Kazowitz law firm and brought this lawsuit against Greenpeace and other quote-unquote um, for hundreds of millions of dollars saying that the activism that they organized at Standing Rock was a form of racketeering. They used it to raise money for their organizations. They raised millions of dollars from it, uh, is what Energy Test Partner says. Uh, They created this whole conspiracy that benefited themselves, and they cost uh, Energy Test Partners millions of dollars in delays and stuff like that. So under the banner of RICO, they brought this lawsuit that's still ongoing in federal court. And uh, the Resolute case is important to point to because they lost that lawsuit. A judge did not agree, and the case was dismissed. And so I think that people who are serious uh, legal watchers and who follow Mm -hmm. this stuff closely 
would probably say this case has no chance of actually prevailing. Um, they have no merit to their case, uh, as it said, but um, it's a way of costing groups like Greenpeace and others involved oh, sure. a lot of time and money uh-huh. and organizational efforts to send these these things off, whereas the case of Energy Transfer Partners, you know, they have endless amounts of money where they can just do this as a almost a legal and regulatory tactic more than a serious legal effort, and it's fine for them, but they know that for their opponents, it will take right. huge organizational efforts to send something like this off. So even if they don't win... Just, you know, for them, these big oil companies, it's just a cost of doing business. Uh, right. Where, yeah, whereas... you know, the critics will say that it's called something called a quote-unquote slap lawsuit or strategic lawsuit against public participation. Right, so right. Um, that's really the heart of it is the critics believe it's just that and that under, they would say that under federal law and even in state houses, there should be stronger laws that prevent slap lawsuits because... Yes of what we're talking about is that it's just a way of trying to silence opposition to, to and organizing by, by groups. So it seems, that seems really clear, is that it's a goal, you know, the, the, the goal is to silence opposition. They were troubled by it. You point out, I always like to have a little good news in these discussions, that a bit surprisingly, the Republican governor of Wyoming vetoed one of these bills. Uh, please tell us about that. Yeah, well, you know, it's a really interesting example because in that state, um, you know, it's obviously I think largely seen as a very conservative state with oh, yeah. largely Republican Party leadership, both in you know at the congressional level and in their state house. They have a Republican governor, Matt Mead, but it actually came under opposition in hearings by even Republican Party uh, some legislators, but also. Even some an industry attorney, uh, kind of a high-profile one in that state, came out against it. And he kind of for the same reasons that we're talking about is that he believes that it could just be an abuse of power. It could silence dissent. Um, it's just a bridge too far, as, mm-hmm. as you would put it. And I forgot the attorney's name, but it was kind of a, I saw it as a, when it happened. It was a key moment because um, if it was 100%, all conservatives were behind it and. Uh, there was no opposition from that end. It probably would have passed. But what happened is it did pass still in the state legislature, um, in, the, in their House and the Senate. But the the governor, I don't know if he cited an exact reason for why he opposed it. That's something I have to yeah, well. look into. But yeah, you know, the governor of of Wyoming. This is the first one that's actually gotten to this stage. A lot of them are still in proposal phase, um, being. Uh, talked talked about at the committee level still, or right. in the case of Iowa, it's passed in the Senate but not the House yet. But yeah, Wyoming was the first example. We got all the way to a governor. Obviously, the Oklahoma one is state law, and that's the inspiration behind all these. But in this year, the only one is Wyoming, and the governor vetoed. It did not become state law in Wyoming, and it, it still remains to be seen what will happen in the other states where it's being proposed. Those states are. Minnesota, Ohio, Iowa, and Louisiana. So, um, you know, but we we did see an example of, because of public pressure, mostly from the conservative side, because I don't know how much pressure you could even get from the liberal side of things right, in Wyoming right, right. to begin with. Texas. But yeah, because of that, it, it did not pass. I would, I would probably say that was the main reason. Well, maybe the governor is a genuine conservative. It It bugs me particularly. This is sort of a 
something that, that bugs me, uh, the use of the term conservative. If one is a real conservative, you have to be conserving something. And, and if you're not conserving the Constitution and our cherished freedoms, you're not a conservative. You know, you may be a servant of the, the oil interest, but that is something else other than conservatism. we got a few minutes left. Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with Steve uh, Horn, an investigative journalist for Criminal Legal News and Prison Legal News, about the state-by-state effort to criminalize and crush dissent uh, with the use of, of fear. Um, and criminalizing protest seems ready-made for the ACLU, you know, and, and the First Amendment and all this. So where's the First Amendment and all this? And uh, the ACLU must have weighed in on this, I would I would think. Yeah, the, the ACLU has been very involved. There's in different states that are involved in the original Oklahoma bill. They're involved in lobbying and advocacy against it. In Iowa, I think they were also involved in the Wyoming effort. And ACLU is also an organization that, unlike a lot of others, um, kind of doesn't have a single partisan allegiance. They're very, you know, for a long time, they've been just committed to the issues and they'll take any allies they can get, whether it's conservative or whether it's a libertarian, whether it's progressive. So they're kind of a hard organization to to pigeonhole ideologically. So I think that their opposition to it um, has still um, a lot of meaning um, in state houses, unlike if it was, for example, and I'm not, dissing them or anything, but if it was the Sierra Club that came out against it, um, I think a lot of legislators would say, okay, well, that's just a liberal right, interest group, right. and I don't really have to listen to that. But if the ACLU does, it's, you know, this is civil liberties, it's something that both parties are, I guess, at least supposed to yeah. kind of believe in and pay homage to. So I think that their advocacy on this has been uh, probably really important, and it's been very visible in those different states, too. Um, so although I know that kind of gotten a high profile for um, their different organizing around things the Trump administration is yeah. doing. But at the state house, they still focus on day-to-day issues like these that can make, that end up making or can end up making a big difference. Yeah, the, the, the state chapters of the ACLU are very, they do extremely important work and can be very effective as well. Now, if a listener is from a state that has no petroleum resources under it, should they be concerned? And if so, why? Well, or why not? Well, the key thing about these, if you look at these bills, is of course we're, the, the way that we're talking about them, and the truth is that the impetus behind them was a protest against pipeline, which yeah. are one form of, of quote unquote critical infrastructure. But if you look at the definition of critical infrastructure, bills, because all the bills do include, and I think have to include defining what critical infrastructure actually is. It's pretty broad, different, you have many different things, and a lot of them aren't pipeline-related. And so I think that um, it would probably be of interest to anyone listening to just take a look at the broad-sweeping nature of how critical infrastructure is defined. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also one of those things where um, things could be lumped into critical infrastructure yeah, eventually because it is such a broad term to begin with. So if it's not already defined as critical infrastructure... Maybe it will be in the future. So I would say that this is definitely not only an oil and gas industry thing in the, even the short term, definitely not in the long term. But of course, um, it can, there can be an inspiration for something that be, and then it can morph yeah. into other things going forward. Critical infrastructure after 9 11, that was sort of, a, they gave a lot of definitions of what Ooh, it was, yeah. but the whole point behind it was. 
um, the 9-11 attacks and trying to prevent another attack like that. And now it's, of course, today it's morphed into um, trying to quash pipeline protests um, and, and pipe protests of refineries and that sort of thing. So you never know how something can change yeah. over the years. So that I think could, that's that could worth be paying attention to regardless, yeah. Sort of the, the, the tip of the iceberg. Then there's the whole conspiracy thing. I mean, they've tried right. conspiracy in the past. You know, anybody, I mean, that's... That's important. Uh, the conspiracy thing is really important. That, yeah, before we, before sure. we part ways, I think that the conspiracy thing, even if you do not have pipelines in your state, but you're someone who cares about environmental issues or you're someone who cares about climate change or you care about water issues in those states where you cared enough that you wanted to give some money towards the cause under these bills, there are provisions in all of them that talk about, as you said, conspiracies. If you are an organization or you gave to the organization that was fundraising towards those organizing efforts, uh, you could be you can be held liable. It'd probably be the organization, but you never know if it could extend to their membership roles, that sort of thing. Um, wow. But you know, it's, so I think that it doesn't necessarily even have to be your state. It could just be that you were in a different state and you wanted that you thought what they yeah. doing was important and you agreed with it. So it, it's it's very uh, broad, you know, kind of broad in its nature, and that's, I think that's why groups like the ACLU think that these bills are troubling. And clearly, the 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 goal is to uh, chill our freedoms, to provide a what they call it, you know, a chilling effect on our freedoms of speech, to scare people and to shut it down. Steve Horn, thanks so much for being with us uh, and for your research into this. And uh, we have no choice but to continue to uh, stand up and dissent when we need to. It seems like the Standing Rock protest scared the heck out of them. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to come on and talk about this. Thanks for having me. All right, and it is about freedom. Don't man. 